ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. Like criminal minds, if you look at criminal minds, yes, sir. these things, it's, I, I, I operate the same kind of thing. He said this from a spiritual side, we go to help people get healed of it mm-hmm. instead of letting them run off and kill people. Matt, that sounds pretty intense. It um, is, it's very intense. You are welcome to sit back in the jury room and take a minute to compose yourself. Are you going to have somebody to come get you or something? Are you going to be okay? It's the Sixth Amendment guarantees a defendant a fair and impartial jury. It's got to work for everyone, including the least popular who are charged. After eight grueling and tedious days of jury selection, a blessed week off. A chance to go home, get reacquainted with the family, the lawyers get a week off, the judge gets a week. Good for everybody, right? Well, maybe. Welcome back to Breakdown and the trial of Justin Ross Harris. He's accused of leaving his 22-month-old son Cooper in a hot SUV to die. I'm Bill Rankin legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. What about the 45 prospective jurors? Before taking the week off, Judge Mary Staley Clark repeatedly admonished the jury panel. Wrap yourselves up in a cocoon or bubble wrap. I don't know. Don't talk to anybody about the case. Don't let anyone talk to you about the case. Forget about the one thing that has occupied most of your time and attention for the past two weeks. If you were in this situation, knowing you might be part of the biggest trial in your community in years, you have the week off. You're left to your own devices. Would you be able to follow the judge's instructions? Having a week off with knowing that you're potentially a juror, potentially not, that sort of invites a little mischief, perhaps. That's Atlanta jury consultant Denise Delarue. She has consulted on some of the highest profile cases of recent memory. Susan Smith. Unabomber Ted Gazinski, Ray Lewis, Eric Robert Rudolph, and the Boston Marathon bomber, Jahar Zanayev. It's human nature. I mean, even if people don't want to violate the judge's order and they're not trying to, everybody's on social media and somebody's going to say something on Facebook. I mean, they're probably not going to, you know, exclude themselves from participating in what they normally do. They might not go out of their way to read an article about the case, but they're likely to hear something or see something. So the potential's there. About those potential jurors, 
Some were excused because they couldn't be fair and impartial. Take juror number 15. It is not even in my realm of thinking that anyone would leave a living thing in these cars. I mean, even to leave a lizard in the car for a couple of hours in, you know, 99 degree weather like we have around here or y'all probably have up there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's murder. That is murder. So who's in the pool? I'm going to offer a sampling here because it's a really interesting parade of humanity. You can't forget the seer, the guy who said God had enabled him to read people's minds. He's in the pool, but he probably saw that coming. Then there's juror number 28, a guy who was arrested for killing a hog when he was young. He said he thought it was a wild boar. Well, they do look alike, sort of. He said he has had several DUIs said he deserved all of them. Two years ago, when police stopped him for having a broken taillight on his truck, he told them, my son left his weed in my truck. So yeah, he threw his own son under the truck. But this fellow said he has served on 10 juries before, and he qualified for the final pool in this one too. Juror number 13 served on two juries when she lived in Washington, D.C., and she was the foreperson on both of them. That tells you something about her, right? She also said she was troubled during one of those cases because a police officer gave different answers to the same question. There's also juror number 19, a middle school teacher from St. Simons. The defense tried to disqualify her because they thought she would become too emotional when she saw photos of the body of little Cooper Harris. She also revealed that she knew a lot about the case. She said, and I quote, I'm not God, so I can't pass judgment but I couldn't forget my child, unquote. The prosecution, of course, wanted to impanel her, and the judge ruled in the state's favor on this one. While dozens of potential jurors have said they think Harris deliberately left Cooper in the car to die, there are at least two on the panel who might give him the benefit of the doubt. Juror number 16 spoke of how her friend's husband left his dog in his truck to die. Well, she talked a little about it. She said he was really upset, but it's the first time it ever happened to him. He wouldn't have done it deliberately because he loved the dog, you know. Then there's juror number 21, the first and only person to say that, as far as she knows, Cooper's death was an accident. Memory serves me correctly. The article that I read, I remember more of initially when it happened. Mm-hmm. And when it initially happened, I was under the impression it was an accident, that mm-hmm. it was strictly an accident. Only days later, and like I said, I I may have glanced at something to where it wasn't an accident. I don't know why it's not an accident. Juror number 21 was then questioned by Susan Treadaway, a new member of the prosecution team. So let me ask you this. Um, would you agree with me that sometimes the things that you, you see or read in the media are, are inaccurate? A lot of for Okay. Hey, wait a minute. Come on. I mean, objection. Let the record reflect that the witness offered no evidence to support her spurious remark about the press. Just saying. And remember juror number 20, the civics lesson lady from last week? She's the one who said she thought Harris was guilty until she walked into court and saw him at the defense table. It's different when you see someone's picture in the news article or on, you know, online, but when you're actually in the room and you realize, like, 
there are no monsters. Mm -hmm. People may or may not do monstrous things, but okay. we're all human beings. And that really hit home with me. And then when the judge was saying, like, keep an open mind, you haven't actually seen any evidence. And I was thinking, and that's true because all that I had seen was what was in the newspaper. And I don't have any way to corroborate, like, whether that's actually true. But after the jury selection process was done, the prosecution tried to backtrack and get rid of juror number 20. Not long after Cooper's death, she had joined a Facebook group called Justin Ross Harris Trial Watch. This is another reminder of how important jury selection is and how far attorneys will go to get an edge or file off an edge sought by the other team. A person associated with the prosecution team actually joined that Facebook group and found juror number 20 was still a member, even though she'd said she had previously severed ties with the group. They also found that she had posted some strong comments about the case. Here's lead prosecutor Chuck Boring. You commented, I don't support the death penalty, but I hope he gets as much time as they can give him. Okay, and that was your post from your account, correct? Yes, sir. This case boggles my mind. I have a 10-year-old and 11-month-old, and there are many times that I could get that I get out of the car and there is tons of stuff to take in, and I have a million things going on in my mind, but not once have I forgotten one of my kids. Right. Boring asked Staley Clark to remove juror number 20 from the pool because she hadn't been completely forthcoming with the court. Curiously, Lead defense attorney Maddox Kilgore, well, came to her defense. Here's what he told Staley Clark. She may be opinionated, she may be somewhat talkative, but there's one thing she's not, and that's a liar. She told us that she was belonged to this group, that she had been a member of it and commented, uh, and the fact that she couldn't remember something that she posted over two years ago is hardly remarkable. Boring said leaving her in the jury pool could create an appellate issue that could lead to a new trial. So Staley Clark made sure that Harris approved of keeping juror number 20 by making him state his wishes on the record. What happens next is the first time Harris has said anything of substance in court since he was charged more than two years ago. Stand up, Ross. Tell the judge you don't want this juror strike. Yes, Your Honor, I do not want this Remember that trial by jury is perhaps the most important principle of American jurisprudence. So the people on this jury pool represent the fondest hopes of our founding fathers. Remember too, however, that they're human, and most humans think about what other humans think about them. Denise Delarue, the jury consultant, says that's something both parties should keep in mind. What I'm really looked at more than them saying, well, sure, at first, glance I thought he was guilty, because that's fairly human, is what other people have said to them. And a number of people have said, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, my husband, my boss, my mom said, oh, I think he's guilty. And I pay a lot of attention to that, because I think that jurors a lot of times are thinking, I'm going to go back to my daily life, to my community, and people know I was on this jury, and everybody has an opinion about what the verdict ought to be. What am I going to have to deal with? that shouldn't come into play, but everybody's human and it does. Delarue also said she'd be wary of jurors whose answers indicated that they might want to be on this jury. This is such a sad and tragic case, regardless of whether uh, it was an accident or it was intentional. I can't imagine why anyone would want to sit on this jury. 
some jurors, not to disparage jurors, but there are some jurors in certain cases who clearly do have an agenda. And in so doing, they think they're doing the right thing. You know, they think the outcome should be a certain way. And so they're going to answer questions the way that they need to to get on the jury and try to ensure that justice be done in their view. And there are others that are attracted by the limelight in a high-profile case. Another high-profile case, the Unabomber case now, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. We had a juror who, I want to ask what he thought when he got his jury summons for this case, said, Larry King, here I come. You know, that was what he thought. I might get on Larry King if I serve as a juror on this case. So you're always concerned about that because what does he think would give him the most press or notoriety? What would be the most press-worthy verdict? You know, any any hidden agenda or motivation to serve on a jury is one of concern. I'm always more cautious about jurors who want to be on a certain case than jurors who don't. Delarue said the jurors in coastal Georgia aren't as hostile as the jurors in Harris's hometown, but she still likes the prosecution's chances. So they seem like a, a group of people that I guess I could say could go either way. I don't look at this and say this is a prosecution bent jury or a defense bent jury, but I think the prosecution has the easier task for sure. From this group of 45 people, the actual jury of 12 will be chosen. That'll be the first order of business when the trial reconvenes. And then we're off to the races. Here are some of the things to expect as the Harris case goes to trial. First, we're hearing up to 60 witnesses for the state, about half that many for the defense. That would surely put the trial into November. And the most important person among those dozens of witnesses could be Ross Harris himself. Will he testify? Should he testify? I've thought about this a lot. Most of the defense attorneys I know and respect are loath to put their client on the stand, just as a matter of practice. But if the prosecution makes as compelling a case against Harris as it seems poised to make, that he intentionally killed his son in one of the most horrible ways you can imagine, then what? The jury will want to see and hear an emotional father who swears it was an accident and that, if he could take it back, he'd lock himself in that car and spare his son. If the defendant testifies, it's only because he's been rehearsed hundreds of times and given mock cross-examinations. I am sure both sides have had focus group and mock juries listening to their cases to try to pick out the weaknesses in them. That's Esther Panich, a defense attorney who has closely followed the case. At this point, It's premature to know whether he should testify. The state always has the burden of proof to prove his guilt beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. If the state has problems making their case, then Ross should not testify. Once a defendant testifies, and sometimes the jurors feel like they need to hear it even though they're told the defendant does not have to testify and you do not have to hold, you cannot hold it against him if he does. But the moment he gets up there and takes the oath, it's almost as if the reasonable doubt burden goes away. Now the only thing the jurors will probably consider is whether they believe him or not. If they believe him, it's likely to result in an acquittal. If they don't believe him, even if the rest of the state's evidence is not enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, it is likely that they would convict. 
Talk about high stakes. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Until Harris takes the stand, if he does, the burden of proof will be on the state to show that Harris is guilty of this crime. But when Harris testifies, that burden will naturally shift to his shoulders. The entire case could come down to his testimony, if he takes the stand. Is he credible? Is he sincere? Or is his reputation in such tatters that he can't possibly redeem himself? You don't see many help themselves. I've seen a lot more guys send themselves to prison than keep themselves out of it. That's Danny Porter, the longtime district attorney in Gwinnett County, Georgia, just north of Atlanta, and one of the most skillful trial lawyers I've ever seen in a courtroom. Porter has had his share of success tearing apart defendants who chose to take the stand. It depends on the nature of the case, and it depends on what you know about the defendant. You know, for instance, I've had cases where I knew that I would be able to demonstrate a characteristic of the defendant. It was a child abuse case and and I knew if I could if I could get under the guy's skin and make him lose his temper, it would demonstrate how he lost his temper with the child. So a lot of it just depends on on um sort of what your goal is in the cross examination. Um in general I would say it's usually a good thing to have the opportunity to uh, cross-examine a defendant because you can at least challenge some of the statements that they make in real time. Marietta defense attorney Ashley Merchant says she wouldn't take the risk of allowing Harris to testify. I would not put him on the stand. And early in my practice, I used to think that I should always put defendants on the stand. And then I got to the point where I had a couple cases when you've got a good state's attorney, when you've got a good prosecutor, they're going to be able to twist and turn what the defendant says. And in this case, Chuck Boring, one of the prosecutors, he is an excellent cross-examiner, excellent. And he is, and usually we don't have DAs that are any good at cross-examination. So normally, you know, the DA is only used to doing what's called direct examination. They don't usually get to do a lot of cross-examination, so they don't tend to be very good at it. Um, in this case, though, Chuck Boring is known for being a very good cross-examiner, and that would worry me. Harris may not take the stand. The defense hasn't said, but we'll probably hear from him anyway. Don't forget that Harris was interviewed at the police station shortly after his arrest, and that he also talked with his wife in the interrogation room. All of that is on tape, and none of it has been made public. Yet. If the tapes come into evidence, and if Harris comes across as a distraught and anguished father, then maybe he doesn't need to testify. But also remember what lead police investigator Phil Stoddard previously testified. He said when he told Harris he was being charged with murder, Harris responded, 
There was no malicious intent. What kind of grieving father offers such a legalistic defense hours after his son has suffered such a horrible death? If he sounds cold and calculating and talks only about what the tragedy has done to him, then maybe he does need to testify. When it comes to strategy, Ashley Merchant points out that Harris may not do as good a job of defending himself on the stand as others can. His ex-wife, Leanna Taylor, and his brother, Michael Bajens, a veteran police officer in Alabama, are both key defense witnesses. The other family members who testified, they would probably be able to do a better job of painting him as a grieving father and painting him as a person who would never do this to his son than Ross himself would be able to do. Just because it's very difficult for a criminal defendant who's gone through the system to be able to separate um, how they would have responded at the time to how they're responding now. They just get hardened when they're in jail for so long. In a case like this, though, what is he going to add? He's going to tell them that he didn't mean to kill his son. That's what he's going to tell the jury. Well, he's already told that, and he can tell that story through other witnesses. But she doesn't dismiss the possibility that he may take the stand. He doesn't have any criminal convictions, so there's not a whole lot they can impeach him with. Um, The sexting is going to come in anyway, so the jury's going to hear about it regardless. And all the, the sexcapades and all that stuff, that stuff's already coming in. So, you know, there's not a ton of harm in him testifying. Oh, yeah. The sexcapades. The prosecution will build a mountain of evidence of Harris's sexual behavior. There are the six women with whom he was sexting as his son sat dying outside in the car. There are the underage girls to whom he was sending photos of his private parts and asking for nude pictures in exchange. There are women with whom he had sex, including prostitutes with whom he did business. This guy's cell phone was such a cesspool that the jury will want to send him to prison just for being a sleaze. For that reason, Harris's defense continues to try to keep out as much of the prosecution's evidence as possible, like the prostitute. Last week, the day after the jury pool was set, Judge Staley Clark heard a defense motion to exclude evidence of an alleged transaction between Harris and a hooker shortly before Cooper's death. Boring, the prosecutor, said this is what he wants the jury to hear. An identification by the prostitute that the defendant uh, paid for sex and met up with at the hotel in Cobb County a few weeks before Cooper's death. Kilgore, of course, doesn't want the jury to hear any such thing. The prostitute, he said, was coerced into testifying. He also said the woman was only 90% sure of Harris's identity. When they confronted her, uh, they gave her an ultimatum that she could either go to jail or she could cooperate. She was not able to give any sort of identifying information other than skin color and fat and dumpy. Yeah, I know. I know what you're thinking. This is a fairly apt description of the defendant. Talk about contempt. In any case, Staley Clark did not rule. She said she'll need to hear more arguments about whether to admit testimony about the prostitute. Okay, so once 12 of Harris's peers are seated, it'll be time for opening statements. Don't forget, as we reminded you in episode four, opening statements are not opening arguments. The lawyers are simply supposed to lay out the evidence that the jurors will hear and not make arguments. Prosecutors and defense attorneys rarely agree on anything, but here's something they both believe. 
Listen to Ashley Merchant, the defense lawyer, and Danny Porter, the prosecutor. Oh, opening statements are so important because the studies around the world have shown that juries decide the case by opening statements, which is terrifying, that they decide the case before anything happens. Statistics show and studies show that a, a, a large majority of jurors make up their mind before they hear the first piece of evidence. And so even though the closing arguments are where the attorney's egos uh, run rampant, the opening statement is probably one of the most critical chances to speak to the jury unrebutted. And so I think you really have to focus a lot of your preparation on your opening statement. Merchant says her primary goal in opening statements is to urge the jury to pay attention beyond opening statements. As a defense lawyer, you just want the jury to keep an open mind. You just want them to not decide it before you get your shot. And that's why it's important as a defense lawyer to just really try and explain to the jury that, hey, there's always two sides to the story. You're not going to hear our side until the very end. So please don't make your mind up until you've heard everything. Porter doesn't organize mock juries to rehearse his openings. More often than not, he'll be doing that out on his back porch. But Porter points out something that I hadn't considered. His questioning for the jury pool during jury selection is designed to lead to his opening statements. So the jurors will feel as if the opening is part of a continuum that begins with the questioning of potential jurors. First, he questions. Then, he instructs. Except, really, he's always instructing. You'll want to develop a theme in your opening statement. You want to develop a theme that you're going to hold through the trial. And you want to get the jury used to that kind of idea of your theory of the case. And if it tends to lend itself to buzzwords, then yes, that's a good persuasive device to use. Boring may have already offered such a catchphrase. In arguing a motion to introduce into evidence the SUV in which Cooper died, he described the car as the murder weapon. I'll be surprised if you don't hear that again. Porter also says he views the opening statement as a kind of agreement between lawyer and juror. I learned a long time ago, one of the dangers, and I've done it several times, is you never want to oversell your case. You always want to try and undersell it a little bit. That's why I think you've got to be really careful, because in a sense, there's a theory of opening statements that's called the contract theory, is that you're making a promise to the jury, and if you, if you fail at that point, they're going to hold it against you if you don't carry out your promises. So the next time we talk, the trial in chief will have finally begun, and I'll be bringing you updates every week. Denise Delarue outlines the two big challenges the defense will face, and we'll see how they play out. Well, I think the sadness overwhelms this case. No matter which side is right, this is just such a tragedy. And I think what's hard for people to believe is that this tragedy happens so very frequently. Um, so I think the awareness that it will bring to people will be profound. And I think it's going to be very hard for some people to actually get past the fact that this actually does happen when it is an accident. I think if people can begin to accept that, they can begin to look into whether or not that was really the case in, in this case. 
but that's a pretty big obstacle to overcome because everybody's visceral responses that would never happen to me I would never do that so I think that's tough uh, the second thing I think is tough is the conduct of the defendant which I assume the defense will admit about conduct with other women he's not married to sexting that sort of thing uh, people can get past the fact that somebody can be a dirty rotten scoundrel in their minds and not be one who would kill his own child so I think those are some pretty big obstacles the defense has to overcome. Next, on Breakdown, I'll tell you how those opening statements came out, and then we'll discuss the first witnesses for the prosecution. Would you be willing, if you were on the jury, would you be willing to listen to everything the state had to say? Then, listen to everything the defense had to say before you made up your mind. I would have to. Because I think morally that's my obligation. And I do have critical thinking skills, which is weighing both sides. Having said that, I don't want to do it. You know, it's just, this is not a pleasant thing. This is awful. But if push comes to shove, I am a moral, fair person. So I would have to listen to both sides. Do I want to do this? No. This is horrendous for me. Season two of Breakdown. Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.